Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. Now, Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, a retired traffic homicide detective from South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back for part two of our coverage of the Broadus family. Also, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) So, just a little recap. Last we left off, the Broaduses hadn't even moved in to the home yet. Right. And they already received two creepy letters that were pretty threatening. Yeah. And they had called the police, and the police are investigating, and that's kind of where we left off. Right. From the watcher, right? Is that how he signed off? The... Yeah, that's what he called himself. Right. Okay. And the police believe that it's most likely a neighbor. Right. Shortly after receiving the first letter, the Broadduses had been invited to a barbecue party at the home across the street from their new house. The Broadduses hadn't told any of their neighbors about the letters, because if you remember, they'd been instructed by the police not to. Correct. But while at the party, Derek, the father of the family, began chatting with a neighbor whose name was John Schmidt, which I found so funny because I'm like, I wonder if his middle name was Jacob Jingleheimer. (laughs) John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. His name is my name, too. Ironically. But, dude, if your last name's Schmidt, you're really going to name your son John. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. That poor guy probably had to deal with that his whole life. His whole life. Couldn't live that one down. Hey, Jacob Heimer. <laughs> yeah, I bet you're like, ha ha, John Jacob, Jingleheimer. <laughs> so John lived two doors down from the Broadduses. Okay. He told Derek about the family who lived in the home between the two of them. So if you're facing the home... On the left-hand side of the home is a house, and then on the other side of that house is where John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt lives. Okay. He explained that a woman named Peggy Langford owned the home. She was in her 90s, and several of her adult children, who were in their 60s, lived with her as well. Okay. John told Derek that he felt the family was a little odd, but seemed nice enough. He joked that Peggy's youngest son, Michael didn't work, and had a long, scraggly beard and appeared to John to be a, quote, kind of Boo Radley character. Boo Radley? You don't know who Boo Radley is? No, I don't know who Boo Radley is. You never read To Kill a Mockingbird in school? No. Really? Or maybe it wasn't assigned back when you were in school, but when I was in school, everybody had to read it. Oh, no, I know the story. I mean, I know they made a movie, and I know it's a famous book, and... Yeah, so basically, Boo Radley is, um, he ends up being a good guy. Okay. But he's kind of strange and keeps to him. Spoiler. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you if you haven't read the uh, book, uh, sorry, I should have given a spoiler alert. But um, <laughs> but yeah, he's kind of creepy and everyone stays away from him and, th- you know, thinks he's doing like evil things in his house. And it turns out he's just like a really nice guy. He just doesn't like people, which I mean, same. Hey, well, you yeah. know. So anyway, yeah, they're saying that Peggy's youngest son who lives with her is also sort of like that. Like he's a little odd, keeps to himself, but, you know, is nice enough. Right. Okay. 
Unbeknownst to both John and Derek at the time that they're having this conversation, the reality was that Michael was actually schizophrenic. Oh, okay. So that probably was one contributing factor as to why they said, you know, they described him as being, quote, a little odd, but it's probably because he had mental illness. And Right. Yeah. It's not an easy thing to live with, for sure. So after taking all of this information into account, Derek believed that the Watcher had to be one of Peggy's children. Which, mind you, when he's talking to John, John has no clue at this point about these letters. So he's just kind of shooting the shit with him. Right, right. He's putting this stuff together himself as he's talking to the neighbor. Right. Okay. The Langford house was located to the side of the enclosed porch where his daughter had been painting. Because if you remember in one of the previous letters, the watcher had claimed that he had seen, you know, the daughter painting in in this enclosed porch. And the porch is not viewable from the road. Right. So as, you know, John's telling him all this, he's kind of thinking, well, that would make sense because their property, they can see into that porch from their side of. Right. Okay. The side of their house. Right. Yeah. Also pretty damning was the fact that the Langfords had moved into the home next door in the 1960s, the exact time period that the watcher claimed to have begun watching their home. Mm, Okay. That's also a bit suspicious. Right, right, okay. The Broadduses immediately shared this information with Detective Lugo, who informed them that he too had suspected Michael Langford, and he brought Michael into police headquarters for questioning. Michael denied knowing anything about the letters, but he did express discontent with the fact that the Broadduses had been doing work to their home. Because remember, they had all the construction going on. Right. Following the interview, Detective Lugo told the Broadduses that he still suspected Michael. And although he insisted that he was innocent, he told them, quote, This isn't CSI Westfield. When the wife is dead, it's the husband. Okay. So basically, Detective Lugo's already come to a conclusion just from one conversation. Right, okay. Which I don't know if it's uh, wise to be that close-minded as a detective, but uh, what do I know? So the detective isn't saying that it's now the husband? No, he was just using a metaphor. Like, he's saying, if all signs point to Michael, it's Michael. Gotcha. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. All right. So even though Michael's denying it, he's like, all these clues point to him, so it has to be him. Right. It's a lot of circumstantial evidence. Right. So, However, because there was no physical or concrete evidence against Michael Langford, there was little the police could do. Right. This understandably angered Derek as he felt his children were in imminent danger. He told New Yorker magazine, quote, This is someone who threatened my kids, and the police are saying probably nothing's going to happen. Probably isn't good enough for me. This person attacked my family, and where I'm from, if you do that, you get your ass beat. They're here. So, following the receipt of their second letter, because remember, up to this point, they had one letter and then a second one. Okay. Derek marched over to the police station and informed them that if they did nothing to solve the issue, that they would, quote, have a different kind of case on their hands. However, (laughs) still, the police assured Derek there was nothing that they legally could do. I just love when regular, you know, citizens go and do this shit because it's like, no matter what you do, there's still nothing we can do. Right. Under the banner of the law, we can't just go and arrest somebody because you think they did it. <laughs> Correct. And yeah, there's nothing more frustrating, you know, being an investigator or police officer. Like you want to, a majority of, of us or, you know, want to help, but the laws are the laws and, and the procedures and stuff are in place to protect the innocent. And, you know, there's naturally 
you know, rules of evidence and, and, you know, things of that nature. And even though you, the police officer might know who it is and like is like 99.9% .9 sure if you don't have the evidence to convict them, there's nothing that can be done. And that's not the answer that people want. Like it's understandable. I, I see both sides of it, but at the end of the day, you can't just arrest somebody because you think they did something. It's, you know, it's false arrest. You have to have the probable cause, which is evidence or, you know, to be able to make that arrest. So that was a difficult part of my job is like, you know, when you knew something, well, I'll give you a perfect example. Like there was many cases that I handled where like a person was struck by a car and the, like, let's say a pedestrian and the pedestrian died. It was the pedestrian's fault. The driver of the vehicle stayed on scene and did everything properly. So it was an accident. It's just, it turned out to be a fatality, unfortunately, but the family of the deceased time and time again would get upset and wouldn't like that we couldn't, you know, we couldn't, we didn't arrest the person or we didn't, you know, do something to the person, the driver. And it's like, listen, they're, at the end of the day, they're accidents, you know, they're, uh, unfortunately. You know, they don't want to hear that their loved one who's now dead was at fault, you know. Of course, right. That's the, the not so pleasant side of those interactions between law enforcement and victims, families and stuff like that. But unfortunately, you know, the laws are in place. And unfortunately, the only thing we can tell them is like, if you want that law changed, you have to reach out to your you know, to your government, to your congressmen, senators and stuff to try to enact change if, you know, but a lot of times nothing's going to happen. So. Well, and in this case specifically, it should be that way. You know, yes. Are there certain suspicious things? Sure. But there's nothing, there's not even really great circumstantial evidence. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yes, he can see into the porch, but arguably so could the neighbors behind them. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of things that add up, but there's a lot of things that they could, a lot of those points could be disproven as well, or there could be alternatives could be found as well. So it's not enough. Right. It should be that way. You know, it shouldn't be that easy to arrest somebody because we already have an issue with arresting innocent people. Agreed. We're not 100% right all the time. So to me, if if you're just going around arresting people willy-nilly just because your gut tells you something, like that's not necessarily right. good enough, you know? So Derek decided to take matters into his own hands and was determined to catch Michael Langford. He installed webcams all over his new home and would spend hours watching the footage, hoping to spot something suspicious. So he's kind of starting to drive himself insane. Right. Which, honestly, is probably what whoever wrote these letters wanted in the first place. Yeah, possibly. The Baradises also decided to hire a private detective to investigate the case. He questioned neighbors and ran a background check on all of the Langfords, but found nothing suspicious in their backgrounds. They also hired a former FBI agent named Robert Lenahan to look into the letters. After investigating the letters... FBI agent Robert believed that the letters had indeed been written by an older person as the envelope had been addressed to, quote, M slash M Broadus. So I guess that's an old-fashioned way to address letters. Right, Mr. and Mrs. to address the family. Right, which I didn't know that prior to reading this case, I guess because I'm too young for that to have been a thing. Well, what are you saying there? That I'm old? Well, I'm just saying that that was before <laughs> okay. my time. I mean, yeah, you're older than me, that's for sure. All right. But you're also apparently old enough to have not read To Kill a Mockingbird, so. Well, I did do a lot of letter writing in my youth, so. Wow, writing letters. Before email, before everything. All you had was snail mail. Wow, you really are old. <laughs> <laughs> so, honestly, all lines up, though, because 
whoever this letter writer is, they've already stated that they started watching the house in the 1960s, which yeah. that lends itself to the obviously you're older because this is in 2014. Then on top of that, the way you're addressing the letters is old. Yeah. Also, each sentence had double spaces between the period and the next sentence, which is an old-fashioned way of typing on a typewriter. So basically, whoever wrote these, was they were using a computer to type it, but they were still typing as if it was on a typewriter. And the funny part about this is we were just yes making fun of my mom about this because she did it for the longest time and one time she sent me an email and i was like mom why do you have so many spaces like between your sentences and she's like what do you mean that's how you're supposed to type and i was like no it's not and she's like yeah they used to teach us that when i first learned typing yeah it was a type when you had typewriter it was double space but in computers (laughs) it's been changed to single space for formatting so yeah so this guy or girl we don't know yet is addressing it old-fashionedly, and also typing it in an old-fashioned style. Right. So because the letters were well-written, Lenahan also believed that the Watcher was, quote, a voracious reader. He also noted that the Watcher never used any profanity in his letters, which was odd considering the level of anger he or she obviously possessed okay. toward the Broadduses. He felt this pointed to the fact that the Watcher was, quote, less macho. He also suggested that the name, quote, The Watcher may have been stolen from a movie of the same title, which had featured Keanu Reeves as a serial killer who stalks the detective trying to catch him. Oh. I love Keanu Reeves, but that's neither here nor there. I've never heard of that movie, though, The Watcher. Me either, but I'm going to watch it because I freaking love Keanu Reeves. But also interesting that there, because, you know, no one else had put that together until this this FBI agent looked at it. Right, right. So based on the letters, Lenahan didn't believe that the writer was likely to act on his threats, but was most likely just attempting to frighten and upset the Broadduses. He also noted that the writer was most likely somewhat erratic, as the letters featured a few small mistakes. For example... The first letter was dated Tuesday, June 4th, but June 4th had actually been a Wednesday. So there really weren't like spelling or grammar errors. It was more just like little factual errors. Hmm, All right. Lenahan also noted that it appeared the writer possessed an unreasonable anger against the wealthy and those who had moved into Westfield from different areas. He recommended that the Broadduses look into former housekeepers of the home and their descendants. Okay. Perhaps one of those people were jealous that the Broadduses had purchased a home that they'd always dreamed of buying and could never afford. Which does make sense because if you remember in the first few letters, one of the things he said is, I used to run through the halls as a child and dream of owning the home one day. And Okay. So I, th- that's pr- a pretty good ob- observation. It could have been a housekeeper who had brought you know their kid to work. Oh, and- yeah. Meanwhile, Detective Lugo asked the Broadduses to send a letter to the Langfords, informing them that they planned to tear down the home completely and rebuild, hoping that this would elicit a response from one of them if they were indeed the Watcher. Gotcha, okay. Which, that's kind of smart, a smart move. Yeah. But it did not. Oh, okay. So they sent the letter and nothing happened. Hmm. Detective Lugo once again brought Michael Langford in for questioning, but he still denied ever sending the Broadduses any letters. His sister, Amy, accused the police of harassing her family when there was absolutely no evidence that they were involved, which, fair. There really is, like, zero evidence they were involved besides the fact that they're a little creepy and live next door. (laughs) Well, okay, so let let me—I want to speak to that for a minute because that happens quite often in investigations. 
as an investigator, if you get a lead that points towards like a certain person or no matter how circumstantial that evidence is, if there's a reasonable suspicion or a reasonable thought process that the evidence may develop into something involving this person. Now, I understand the person is, you know, feels harassed or whatever, but as an investigator, you have to be able to go and talk to people and and investigate. That's what it's for. Yeah, I feel like it's it's one of those situations in this situation in particular where I can see both sides of it. If the Langfords really are innocent and they're just like trying to live their life and they're like, dude, we didn't send any freaking letters. You know, I can see their side of it. Like there's no evidence I did. But I can also see the detective still has a job to do. Right. He's following leads. And if he weren't to do that, then everyone's going to complain. Well, you're not doing anything. Right. You're not doing your job. So I can see both sides of it. Of course. And and at the end of the day, I would, you know, I would approach them if they were innocent that, listen, I'm trying to catch somebody who's potentially a threat to your neighbor, to the neighborhood. You know, you don't know. It could be potentially, you know, a threat to the entire neighborhood. Yes, this is this one house, this one family is the one that's being targeted. But if something bad happens to them, who knows what the ramifications are? So I would kind of go that route as well. But and generally, my experience, people that are guilty are the ones that usually complain right away. And they're like, not always, but, you know, I do think that Detective Lugo didn't I shouldn't say didn't go about it the right way because I'm not a detective. I don't know. But I would say that I think you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And I think that he came in really strong and very accusatory. And I think that that automatically put them on the defensive. Right. And even the fact that he, which I think this is unprofessional, the fact that he even went to the Broadduses and said, oh, it's definitely him. Like, I know it's him. Yeah. That's kind of messed up because it's like you don't know that. And now you're making the situation even worse not only for yourself, but for everybody involved, because you're basically telling these poor families and they're going to believe the police. Right. Yeah. You're solidifying the unknown. Right. Which you should never do. Correct. It's not a positive, you know, investigative trade or position on his part, or, you know, I agree with you. He shouldn't have done that. However, some cases, you know, like you said, it's, uh, you catch more flies with honey than you do. Vinegar. Vinegar. But sometimes all you have is vinegar. No, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I, I understand that that's not a yeah. something you could use always. But I think in this case, he would have gotten a lot farther if he had just been like, hey, man, you know. Right. Yeah, it's always better to start off on the, I don't want to say nice, but on the more civil or pleasant side, because you never know, you might naturally interview investigation is different and you have to kind of read the person you're dealing with. And, well, and every situation is different. Yeah, so I agree with you. Uh, you know, I agree with what you're saying. I'm just throwing a little light on the alternative to that and why sometimes, you know, people are harassed right. in an investigation. I mean, it, it happens. It's unfortunate. And if you truly are innocent, then, you know, yes, it's some harassment, but it's no harm, no foul. You're not getting in trouble. Unless you're falsely arrested, of course. But Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a whole nother topic. Right. Exactly. So finally, the Broadus has hired an attorney who requested to meet with the Langford family attorney. The Broaddus' attorney finally showed the Langfords the Watcher's letters. Because remember, up to this point, they haven't seen them. They just know right. because from what the detective told them. Right. The Broaddus' attorney also showed them all of the evidence they'd gathered, leading them to believe that one of the Langfords were involved. So they had compiled kind of pictures and stuff that showed, listen, you can only see this porch from this angle and blah, blah, blah. Right. The Langfords obviously grew angry 
and once again assured the attorney and the Broadduses that Michael was innocent and had held no ill will towards the Broadduses or their children and had never had any issues with anybody prior who lived in that house. Because remember, they've lived there since the 60s. That's a long time because this is 2014. Yeah. Which that's a good point, too, is, listen, if he's and mind you, they don't know he's mentally ill at this point. But they're right. but they're like, listen, he's lived here this long and never even done anything wrong to anybody else in the neighborhood. So why would he all of a sudden start with you? And they're not the first family who ever did construction to the house. Right. Uh, in some capacity, you know. Right. OK. However, despite the Broadduses certainty that Michael was to blame, there is evidence to the contrary as well. For one, the police spoke to Michael for the first time after the first letter was sent, but before the next letter. Okay. Right? So in between the first and second letter is when they first talked to him. Okay. If it indeed had been Michael, it would be extremely reckless to send more letters knowing that all this kind of heat is on you, not only with the police, but with the attorneys involved. And Right. Okay. Also, the private investigator had uncovered that two child sex offenders lived within a few blocks of the home. Oh. So there were other suspects that it could be. Right. Additionally, the Broaddus's painter claimed that he found the couple who lived behind the Broaddus's suspicious. Because remember, the Langfords lived to the left of the house, but then they have neighbors in the back and on the other side. Right. So the painter claimed that he'd noticed that the couple who lived behind the Broadduses kept a pair of lawn chairs strangely close to the Broadduses' yard. Not only this, but instead of facing the chairs towards their own home and yard, they faced towards the Broadduses' house. Okay. Which, that's a li- that is a little weird. Yes. You know, if, we're, if I'm sitting in my backyard, I'm not going to, like, be facing the neighbors. Well, I don't know. If, if you have, like, a a back porch and you place the chairs where you look at, you know, your backyard. No, the chairs aren't on their porch. It's up against the property line. Oh yeah. That's, that's okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I thought you meant, but they were, not only was it against their property line, but it was facing their property, not, not their own property. Okay. I thought it was still like on a porch or something like that or, okay. Okay. So the painter told New York magazine, quote, One day I was looking out the window and I saw this older guy sitting in one of the chairs. He wasn't facing his house. He was facing the Broadduses, which that's, it is kind of weird that you're just sitting there by yourself staring at your neighbor's house. Staring at the neighbor. Yeah, that is a little weird. (laughs) By the end of 2014, the investigation had come to a standstill. The watcher had left no evidence on any of the letters, at least none that the police had released yet. There were no fingerprints and no way for police to place anyone at the scene of the crime. Also, there was no way to prove where the letter had come from, as potentially it could have been sent from anywhere in northern New Jersey. At this point, Derek decided to show the letters to the family's priest, and he agreed to bless the house in hopes that it would ward off any evil or bad intentions. Finally, the renovations to 657 Boulevard were complete, and although the Broadduses had put in a state-of-the-art alarm system, they still feared moving into the house. Once the alarm had been installed, it would go off randomly in the middle of the night. (laughs) And Derek would race over, because remember, at this point, they're still living in their old house. Right. The alarm would go off. Derek would wake up, race over to the house, carrying a knife with him. 
But each time he would come home, turn off the alarm, and there was nothing there or no one. Right. Okay. So that's creepy. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the Broadduses received yet another letter. So it's been a couple months since the last letter was sent. Okay. This time, it appears the Watcher was growing even crazier. So this is the fourth letter, because if you remember, the first one was creepy. The second one was kind of around the same thing, kind of creepy. But then the last one just said, the house misses you. When are you moving in? Right. So then they receive a fourth letter. It read, quote, 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't know why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. <laughs> okay. So it seems like whoever's writing these is going off the handle. Yeah, yeah a little bit. More so than the first letters. Right. Mm-hmm. After receiving this letter, the Broadduses decided it was not safe moving into their new home. Maria recalled, quote, At the end of the day, it came down to, what are you willing to risk? We weren't going to put our kids in harm's way. However, at this point, the Broadduses had sold their old home and were forced to make a decision. Mm. They decided to move into Maria's mother's house, although they were still paying the taxes and large mortgage on the home at 657 Boulevard. Wow, okay. Finally, six months after the first letter had arrived, and after months of stress, the Broadduses decided to sell their newly renovated dream home. However, by this time, rumors were flying around the area about what had occurred in the house, and although many people loved the home, they were unwilling to pay the price tag the Broadduses had placed on the home to reflect all the new upgrades. Right. Wanting to do the right thing, the Broadduses sent a partial disclosure to each interested buyer, explaining the letters. Unsurprisingly, no buyer was willing to pay a fair price for the home considering what had happened to the Broadduses there. Their Coldwell agent pushed them to not be so forthcoming with future buyers. However, and I thought this was pretty impressive, the Broadduses refused, despite the financial hit they were taking. Derek stated, quote, I don't know how you live through what we did and think you could do it to somebody else. Somebody else, yep. So even though their broker was like, dude, stop telling people about it, you're not required to. Yeah, you got to do the right thing. Yeah, he's like, I'm not going to do that to somebody. Right. A year after buying the home... On June 2nd, 2015, the Broadduses decided to file a legal complaint against the Woods. So if you remember, the Woods are the ones who sold them the home in the first place. Right. They felt it had been the Woods' responsibility to inform them of the strange watcher letter they'd received prior to the Broadduses closing on the home. After this complaint was filed, the story went viral and news trucks camped outside of the house because in their filing against the woods, these letters are published in the legal documents. Okay. So that's how everybody finally gets their hands on them and everyone flips the fuck out. Okay. <laughs> it goes viral and news trucks are at their house. So I'm sure the watcher loved that. He didn't want all that noise and commotion and look what he did. 
Yep, he opened a door there. Wanting to shield their kids from the unwanted attention, the Broadduses were forced to leave Westfield completely. Everyone was intrigued by the case and wanted the home's walls searched as the watcher had claimed that there were things hidden there. Because if you remember in the first letter, he was like, have you found what I've hidden in the walls, blah, blah, blah. Right. However, the Broadduses contractor had already searched and claimed that there had been nothing hidden in the walls, despite what the watcher had claimed. Okay. Interestingly, after the story broke, many of the Broaddus' neighbors claimed they'd never been contacted by police, despite Detective Lugo's claims that he'd interviewed all of the nearby neighbors. Because remember, he told the Broaddus, oh yeah, I talked to all the neighbors. That was a lie. <laughs> okay. A lot of the neighbors, once the letters came out, they were like, well, we were, they never talked to us. Wow. All right. So, and as we'll see later, that also comes back to bite them in the ass because there was other information they could have gathered if he'd actually talked to people like he claimed he did. Oh, okay. So the public urged a retired Westfield detective by the name of Baron Chambliss to, which what a name, Baron Chambliss. That's a strong name. Sounds like he would be a detective. Like it just sounds like an old school detective name. Yeah. Detective Baron Chambliss. Baron Chambliss. Here to investigate. <laughs> So they thought he would conduct a more thorough investigation, and Chambliss agreed. So he took on oh, the okay. case. All right. He looked into Detective Lugo's claims that Michael Langford was the perpetrator. However, when Chambliss interviewed the neighbors, they explained that Michael suffered from schizophrenia, and although he did odd things, he was really kind and often misunderstood. John Schmidt, so that's the same neighbor that Derek spoke to at the barbecue party. Right. He told Chambliss that Michael, quote, goes out and gets the paper for me every single morning. <laughs> so he, he was like, what are you talking about? He's great. Yeah, it's a super nice guy, right? Yeah. Many of the neighbors informed Chambliss that they did not feel that Michael was capable of writing such letters. Okay. Incredibly, while investigating, Chambliss discovered that the Westfield police had conducted a DNA test on the letters. Really? But they had never released that publicly. <laughs> okay. It turned out that the only DNA found on the letters, which is where you would lick it, you know, to seal mm -hmm. it, yeah. was that of a woman. Really? It's also kind of fucked up if you think about it, which, to be fair, we don't know how quickly that DNA test came back or whatever, but right. it is pretty fucked up that Detective Lugo, whether it happened before or later, certainly realized, okay, at the very least, a woman is involved. Right. And that he still was going after poor Michael when it's like, dude, it was a woman. <laughs> right. Hmm. Chambliss began to suspect that the true perpetrator might have been Michael's sister, Abby, as she was a realtor and may have been upset that she was not involved in the sale of such a lucrative property. <laughs> okay. However, after stealing a water bottle that Abby had drank from, her DNA did not match the DNA on the letter. Okay. So Abby's out. And to be fair, anybody from her family is out because it would have come back right. as like a relative. Correct. Not long after this, the prosecutor's office contacted the Broadduses, and although they would not tell them how or why, they assured them that they did not believe that the Langfords were involved at all. Yeah, because they got the DNA back from Abby that they stole from her water bottle, and they realized that none of the Langfords could yeah. be involved. Right. Yeah. But of course, because they were wrong. But they didn't admit that to the Broadduses. Of course not. Sandy Langford told New York Magazine, "Quote: 
My family moved to the boulevard in 1961, and we never caused a problem for anybody. This guy gets all these letters, and all of a sudden, people are pointing fingers. Which she does have a point. Do feel bad for them that they went through all that, and it definitely wasn't them. Absolutely. The police asked Andrea Woods and her 21-year-old son to provide a DNA sample. They complied willingly, and they also were not a match. Okay. However, the story going viral did help the investigation because, remember, they were supposed to have questioned everybody on the boulevard, but they didn't. Right. So once the story went viral and they all heard about these letters, a family heard about them on the news, a family who lived on the boulevard, and came forward and said that they too had received a letter from the Watcher around the same time that the Broadduses had received their first letter. They told police that they had thrown out the letter, but they basically described its contents. They said it was similar to pretty much all of the things that were said to the Broadduses in their first letter. Right, okay. However, they had never received any other letters, unlike the Broadduses. Right. So they just thought, oh, this is some stupid hoax and threw it away. Right. But interesting that whoever is the watcher sent both of these families a letter at the same time. And where did, did it say where they lived in relationship to the Broadus? Um, not, they weren't like an immediate neighbor, but they lived down the road. Okay. So the police would have found that out, though, if they had actually uh-huh. questioned they everyone actually, like they yep. said they did. Right. One night at approximately 11 p.m., as Chambliss was watching the Broadus's house with a partner. So this is like typical movie. They're literally in the car together with binoculars watching the house, seeing what's happening. Okay car stopped for a period of time in front of the house. Chambliss grew suspicious and ran the car's plates. The car belonged to a woman who was dating a man whose family lived on the boulevard, although he no longer lived in the home. Okay. So why is she there? Right. (laughs) Chambliss interviewed the girlfriend, and she informed him that her boyfriend often played dark video games, including one which featured a character known as The Watcher. (laughs) Okay. Chambliss began to suspect that he and the girlfriend may have been involved. He set up an interview two separate times with the boyfriend, but he failed to show up both times. As Chambliss had no proof and no way to force the boyfriend to talk to him, there was nothing more he could do. Finally, after finding nothing concrete, Chambliss dropped the case altogether because there was nothing else to go on. Right, okay. Some of the Broadduses' neighbors believe it's possible that the Broadduses themselves wrote the letters. They theorized that perhaps after purchasing the home, they had buyer's remorse or realized they couldn't afford the home and wrote the letters in an attempt to get out of the sale. Or perhaps Derek Broaddus had been attempting to hatch some sort of homeowner's insurance scheme. Many also believed that the Broadduses hoped to make money off of the viral story. Some also believed that the Broadduses had written the letters in an effort to defraud the Woods family out of money, because remember, now they're suing them. Oh, right. Okay. This doesn't seem to be more than just kind of rude and unsubstantiated rumor, because the Broadduses were actually offered many movie and television deals and turned them all down. So hmm. if they were actually, you know, money hungry, I'm, let's be real, they would have taken that. Right. Also, the police had tested Maria's DNA, and it was not a match to the DNA on the letter. Yeah, I was going to ask that was the DNA test. What about for the girlfriend that drove in front of the house? Did they test her? No. Or... 
Because, no, I mean, okay. they can't compel her. No, I know. Yeah. Although they could have stolen it like they did with um, Abby Langford. They could have asked her, though, if she wanted to voluntarily, you know, provide it. But Maybe they did, and she said no. Yeah. Of the rumors that they were involved, Derek told New York Magazine, quote, There's a natural tendency to say, I've lived here for 35 years. Nothing's ever happened to me. What happened to my family is an affront to their contention that they're safe, that there's no such thing as mental illness in their community. People don't want to believe that this could happen in Westfield. Interesting. Two years after the first letter arrived, the Broadduses borrowed money from family members and purchased a second home in Westfield. However, they still owned 657 Boulevard because nobody would buy it. Right, okay. So they had to figure out what to do with it because obviously they can't afford two mortgage payments. Right. Their lawsuit against the Woods wasn't going well, and the suit was eventually dismissed by a New Jersey judge. So they didn't get any money. Okay. Eventually, they decided to put the house back on the market. But every time they had an interested buyer and they disclosed the letters, the buyer would back out of the sale. Okay. Which is kind of funny because I tried to think, I tried to put myself in that situation and I'm like, would I back out of it? And I kind of don't think that I really would. I mean, they're receiving threatening letters. I mean, I guess you would know, I guess you would research it. Because let's be real, there's no spell on the house. No, right. The way I would look at it is none of the old buyers of this house had an issue. The only people who have an issue is you. So to me, I'd be like, whoever's doing, right. like, I believe somebody's doing this to you, but whoever it is has an issue with you. Right. Yeah, that that seems reasonable. So I would probably purchase it. You know, they would have to come down, I'm sure, on the price if you really wanted to get rid of it. So. Which they weren't willing to do at this point because they're so far in the hole. Right. I understand that too, but. Finally, the Broadduses' real estate lawyer suggested that they sell the home to a developer who could tear down the original home and split the property into two sellable plots. Okay. However, this change would have to be approved by a planning board, and after many residents spoke out against the measure, the board unanimously rejected the Broadduses' proposal, so they couldn't even do that. <laughs> okay. Finally, a family with two adult children and two big dogs agreed to rent the home from the Broadduses, although the rent they agreed to pay did not cover the mortgage payment on the house. Oof, okay. The family agreed to rent as long as the Broadduses allowed them to get out of the lease in the event that the watcher letters began again. So basically, they wanted something put in the contract that said, listen, if this starts happening, we're out. Right. And the Broadduses agreed. Right. Two weeks after the renters had moved in, another letter arrived. <laughs> okay. And the renters turned it over to Derek. The letter was dated on February 13th, the day the Broadduses had given depositions in their lawsuit against the Woods family. It could be coincidence, but that's kind of interesting. Okay. It read, quote, Violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault 
and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. The letter also mentioned that the Watcher was aware that new renters had moved in and threatened revenge against the Broadduses, saying, quote, Maybe a car accident. Maybe a fire. Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. The letter ended saying, quote, You are despised by the house, and the Watcher has won. Oh, okay. So we, we thought the Watcher was gone, but he ain't. Or she ain't. <laughs> or she ain't, right, yeah. Still lingering, all right. The Broadduses once again brought the letter to police. The renters, which, surprisingly... Although spooked, decided to stay in the home as long as Derek agreed to install further security cameras. Right. Although the Broadduses never received another letter from the Watcher themselves, on Christmas Eve of 2017, several families received an envelope in their mailbox. It was evident that each letter had been hand-delivered, and each of the recipients of the letters had all been vocal in condemning the Broaddus family online, so... All the families that were saying, oh, the Broadduses wrote these letters themselves, you know, they were the ones who received these letters. Okay. The letters all accused the families of spreading lies about the Broadduses. They also, quote, included several stories about recent acts of domestic terrorism in which signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. These letters, however, were not signed by the Watcher, but instead were signed, quote, friends of the Broaddus family. However... As it turned out, these letters were, in fact, written by Derek Broaddus. What? He later admitted it. So not the Watcher letters, but these letters that are in these people's mailbox who were talking shit about them. He later admitted he he claimed he wasn't proud of it, but he was so fed up with all of the accusations. He'd written the Christmas Eve letters without even telling his wife. So his wife didn't even know he had done it. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Which makes sense because let's be real, she probably would have been like, you dumbass, no. Right. But he denied ever writing any of the Watcher letters. Hmm. To this day, the Watcher's identity still remains a mystery. And in 2019, the Broadduses were finally able to sell 657 Boulevard to an anonymous buyer for 959000 So much less than they'd purchased the house for. Okay. Because if you remember, they purchased it for, I think it was $1.3 million. Right. And then all the upgrades. And then all and... the upgrades, yeah. Right. Ultimately, okay. the Broaddus family lost over 400000 on the sale and even more on construction costs. Right. Right. Jeez. Since the sale, the Broadduses have tried to live a quiet and private life away from the spotlight. They hope that one day the Watcher, who tortured them for years, will finally be caught. Still out there, unknown. Yeah. Wow. He or she, according to the DNA, it's a girl, but... Right, right. Wow. Okay. Wild. Man, all right. That is wild. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it makes sense it's a woman, because I feel like writing letters is something a woman would do. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, but I mean, well, the fact that DNA says that it's a woman, I mean, that's... So it's going to probably be... Well, it's got to be an el- a, a much older lady, right? Because right. if she was around since the 60s, so... 
and they know for a fact it's not the Langfords because they tested their DNA, so it right. would have come back as familial even if it wasn't Abby. Right. Hmm. The people that lived behind them that had the chair sitting, were they an older couple? Were they looked into as far as the DNA? I think they were. I don't know exactly how old, but I think they were an older couple, but I don't believe they ever okay. gave DNA. Or I don't even know if they were ever asked to. Right. Okay. Hmm. But interesting, isn't it? It is very, very interesting. And unfortunately, that DNA, will, it'll sit there. And if the, the perpetrator or the, the female is an elderly person who's not, you know, prone to criminal activity, her DNA will probably never be located. In... If I was the Broadduses, because I'm, I mean, they're rich. If I was the Broadduses, I would pay, because nowadays, I don't, you couldn't probably do it in 2014, but now I would pay to have the DNA privately tested because now they run it through all of the ancestry stuff and they can find right. like who it is through that. I mean, because let's be real, I'm sure whoever right. it is, somebody in their family, whether it's a cousin, like their kids, their you know niece, nephew, somebody's put their you know DNA on one of those sites. And yeah, possibly. Yeah. Then you can kind of narrow it down. I would do it if I, because let's be real, the police, because of the nature of the case, the police aren't going to put any more money into it. No, not at all. No. But the family could do whatever they want. And it's not like they don't have the money to do it. Of course. Yeah. Well, maybe they don't now that they've taken such a financial hit, but. Well, yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're, yeah. So, huh. Quite a mystery, huh? That's a wild one. Okay. So we do have a question. Okay. This one is from Sarah. So, hi, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for listening and for submitting a question. So, this one is for both of us. Cool. She must be from the South because this is how she wrote it. If y'all... All right. <laughs> <laughs> if y'all could do anything for work other than what you do now, what would you guys do? Oh, well, I'm retired, so I don't want to do nothing. <laughs> no. Um... I would say very quickly either um, have a, a musical career because I play drums, like in whether it's in a band or something, or sports. I play. I grew up playing baseball and kind of let that go when I graduated high school and went into the military and stuff. So I went down a different road. So probably either like a an attempt at a professional baseball player or a rock and roll star. Man, that's a good one. You know, well, making making music, not necessarily being a rock and roll star, but you know, being able to make a living off of music would be fun. Right. I think, you know, so. Yeah, I tried to get him to teach me how to play drums when I was little. Man, I do not have the uh, <laughs> coordination for it. I couldn't do, like, different things at once. Right. My brain doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a different thought process, so. But for me, I would say, number one, I would really love to be a writer, which... Hey, there's still time, and I'm, I am actually have submitted oh. some um, stuff for publication, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, wow, okay. But I would really like to write, and... No more, like, uh, Broadway aspirations, or... You know, I don't think that I would really like to do performing so much. Okay. I honestly could really get into directing. I like... Behind-the-scenes type of stuff? This is something I didn't realize when I was younger, but as I've gotten older, you have more creative power working behind the scenes than you do as a performer because you kind of just do what they tell you to do and that's right, it. Right, you've got to follow the script or whatever, yeah. That's why I enjoy playwriting. I actually, uh, I wrote a play when I was in high school and um, it was pretty good and it won some yeah. awards. Oh, cool. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, huh? Banana monologues. Oh yes, I do remember that. I forgot that was a play. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he's seen it. He's seen it. Oh yeah. Several times, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. But creatively making a cohesive whole. Right. And I find that is more exciting to me now than actually like don't get me wrong, I, I enjoy performing and I would still perform and I, I probably will perform more in the future, but it's just that's not where my passion lies. Right, right. Okay. That's fair. But yeah, I would say those two things probably. The other thing is I'm I'm really passionate about being an educator. It's something I really enjoy doing. I get a lot of fulfillment from it. But I will say that one of my goals for the future is I'd really eventually like to open up my own sort of kids performing arts center where, you know, we provide classes. We do um, different shows, you know, geared towards kids. And right, right. That's one of my dreams is to kind of open up my own business where it's like a theater school, essentially. Yeah, right. Very cool. But yeah. There you go. Excellent question, Sarah. Thank you. Yes, that was a good question. All right. Well. I hope you guys have an excellent Halloween. Happy Samhain yeah. for all of the uh, witchy people out there. Oh, my. Be safe out there when you're trick-or-treating. Be, yeah, be safe. Get lots of candy. Steal your kids' candy. Whoa. You know, not not all of it, but, like, you know, you can have a few, a few bites. Like, all I right. always steal the Reese's because that's my favorite. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but until next week, keep it real. <laughs> <laughs> keep it however you can keep it ain't that the truth (laughs) so until next time bye oh god bye